0: this podcast may include adult content bound off is an independent non-profit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work to join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com donate support for this episode comes from the loft literary center located in minneapolis minnesota one of the nation's leading literary nonprofits, offering a wide array of creative writing classes for all levels and genres Online classes are offered seasonally. Find out how to register at loft.org. Welcome to a special edition of Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. This edition is a live reading at CSPS in Cedar Rapids, held December 1, 2012, and sponsored by Nubo Books. The reading was a celebration of the second anniversary of Obsolete magazine and featured readings by Obsolete contributors W. Joe Hoppy, Kelly Shriver, Walter Chian, Jonna Higgins-Freeze, Todd Colby, and Rich Dana. Obsolete Magazine was started in 2010 as a response to the rapid decline in time-binding media. Obsolete is an old-school newsprint tabloid, complete with slapdash layout, smudgy printing, and inflammatory rhetoric. For more information, visit their website at obsoletemag.blogspot.com. W. Joe Hoppe grew up in the Rust Belt town of Jackson, Michigan and has degrees from Jackson Community College, the University of Michigan, and the University of Texas, where he received a James A. Michener Fellowship. He lives in Austin and teaches English and creative writing at Austin Community College. His first full-length book of poetry, Galvanized, came out in 2007. W. Joe is the proud Mopar Muscle Cars of Austin's 2011 member of the year called Michael Collins in the far side of the
1: moon and it's an honor of not the Irish revolutionary but the astronaut who did not get to walk on the moon he piloted the command module but he did get to be the person the first person who was so completely alone he didn't even have the earth to look back on and no one to talk to so uh I'm sympathizing with him a little bit through Skype. I can't see y'all. I can see Rich. So anyways, Michael Collins and the Far Side of the Moon. Like angels in their lack of free will, hovering above us purely as agents. Think of Michael Collins, 14 orbits around the moon, but never getting closer than nine miles to its surface. Command module for Buzz and Neil trudging their seas of tranquility and glory. While alone above their heads, he circled like a film noir taxi, keeping the motor running for the getaway. But 47 minutes of each two-hour orbit found him beyond all contact in truly cosmic solitude. The far side of the moon with no Earth to look back on, A universe to look out on, all to himself. Okay, well this next uh, poem is a Texas poem, and it's called Between Austin and San Angelo, and uh, San Angelo's uh, Northwest a couple hours um, from Austin. The Texas Department of Transportation meets budgetary constraints by ignoring roadkill. White stripes on mashed black pelts parallel the road commission's painted lines as over the miles skunk scent oscillates between eye watering and a faintly sexy musk. While stiff legged deer carcasses are Bambi tragic, fluffy white tails collect road grime, and gaping rib cages beckon the raw red heads of turkey vultures. I've always worried about the buzzards getting enough sustenance to maintain themselves upon the air. Insistent on ornithological accuracy, Larry, the poet laureate, says that there is no bird called a buzzard. There aren't any buzzards in Spain either, so the conquistadors had to steal a word from the locals. Zopilotes soar in Mexican skies. And this is also why in those Clint Eastwood westerns filmed in Spain, excuse me, there's only crows hanging around the gallows. And I'm going to wind up with a poem, it's a longer poem, it's called Trash Dance. And you can look this up on YouTube if you'd like. Uh, It's one of the most fantastic art Um, performances I've ever seen. So this is called Trash Dance with gratitude to Allison Orr, the choreographer for this thing, Uh, William Carlos Williams, who I stole lines from, and the City of Austin Solid Waste Services Department who put the thing on. Among the rain and lights I saw the figure eight of City of Austin garbage trucks dancing across the abandoned airport asphalt. Among the late summer rain after five months of drought and the mighty light of sunset sweeping behind the cloud mountains of the west, and the lights of the trucks themselves yellow caution spinning rooftop lights, red brake lights, white, white headlights, the garbage trucks, the automated grabber claw trucks, the dumpster green dead animal truck they dance. Insinuous lines, regimented rows, lights reflected on the rain-shined pavement, on the safety yellow-green reflectorized vests of solid waste workers, two-step trippin' in big blue recycling bins. Hydraulic arms rise in hallelujahs, claws circle containers, bring them up full, let them down, empty, let them drum on the asphalt, let the MC Trashmaster's words hip-hop across the parking lot, ballet, ba balle, booty shaking, spin your bins and alamand left, break it down. For the man with the big scraper shovel and the big green truck that removes possums and raccoons, kittens and pink collared poodles. He passes like a windshield squeegee, words like a prophet from air raid surplus speakers. Street sweepers follow his revelations, his lonesome cowboy secrets will not be left seeping into the Pavement, so the tarmac is clean for a brand new scene where the spotlights shine on a swan crane solo 500 people sit expectant as the driver exits his cab extends the braces with a pneumatic sigh and mounts the controls to turn and roll rise and twist pirouette in his great articulated arm in the moist night air it's like a secret we share what crane operator has not danced his machine in solitary joy at the end of a grinding workday? The closing promenade, trash truck, trash truck circling, dust bins drumming is as grand as any finale as Barnum and Bailey, as Buffalo Bill Cody, as every Monday through Friday, from the early, early morning through those long afternoons, as we witness briefly atop this wave of applause, another instant of necessary beauty. So thanks very much. I'm honored to be a part of Absolute Press.
2: Um, Our next reader is Kelly Shriver. Kelly has published several stories, and her play *The Ethical Dilemma of a Sandwich Down the Pants* was produced by Theater of Cedar Rapids Underground Theater Festival. She's also the co-founder of Bound Off, a short fiction podcast. So, please welcome Kelly Schreiber.
3: All right. Let
4: me know if you can, if you have trouble hearing me. So last night in Chicago, um, in the Wicker Park neighborhood, uh, a guy named Kevin uh, was hanging out with his friends. He went into Quimby's comic book shop, picked up a copy of Obsolete. It was the um, Nihilism* issue, which my story, The Drug Pyramid, was in. And uh, he grabbed it to have something to look at on the train on the way home and um, showed it to his friends. They liked it. And like midnight last night, he emailed me to tell me so. And um, I was of course delighted to get that email. And it just made me think of this uh, this idea of raising social capital with obsolete, which uh, Rich has been talking about and I think it benefits us all. So so to introduce the story, um, this uh, was, what I'm reading tonight is this shorter version, the original version of the story, and I expanded it for the version that, that appears in obsolete. And uh, I was, it was part of a four part piece that was uh, making fun of uh, the food pyramid. Um, And fun fact, the food pyramid is now obsolete actually. So it is now a plate, it's not a pyramid anymore. So, all right, so the premise is that this is an excerpt from the memoir of this character named the Reverend Timothy Clarity. And uh, his memoir is titled, And On the Eighth Day God Tripped. Back in 1992, we had the brilliant idea of publishing our own drug pyramid to protest the agribusiness-created food pyramid. We had it all figured out at first. The lowest tier, the biggest one, would be booze, you know, to get the grain component in. Plus, everyone drinks, so that would form a nice solid base. The next row up would contain drugs that come from vegetables, mainly pot, and then we'd include nicotine, mushrooms, peyote, etc. Well, that led to a lot of infighting. We hadn't realized just how much great stuff comes from plants. It came down to some crazy jungle warfare with the Colombians. The poppy growers were way too decentralized, and the marijuana and tobacco growers knew they were on our side already. But first, we had caffeine up our ass. You wouldn't believe the power of the caffeine lobby. We weren't even going to include them at first. They found out and went apeshit. The caffeine guys are so completely relentless. They don't have as much money as big booze, but each one has the energy of 10 alcohol lobbyists. (laughs) The booze guys showed us a good time, made their points, and got better and better at convincing us as the night wore on. Then all of a sudden, they made no sense at all. One of them disappeared into the bathroom to puke, then passed out on the couch. Another one took off with some chick from the tea industry, who let her in anyway? Meanwhile, caffeine gained steam. They didn't need to sleep or eat. As the night wore on, they got so irritable that we just gave in. So caffeine got the lowest tier, the widest one, because of their claim that they have the most addicts. We still don't think they're even a real drug. <laughs> <laughs>
2: just to let you know, something about the model that we've sort of established. Um, it's, the magazine's given away for free. We ship bundles around to volunteer, what we call guerrilla distributors, and then they take them out to their local, independently owned record stores, bookstores, coffee shops, etc. So we've got copies from the Hudson Valley in New York to uh, the Northwest Coast, uh, Portland and Seattle, and um, it's always interesting. I I, have been getting a lot of uh, zines from um, fans in Canada lately, so somehow some, some bundles got, got to Canada, so <laughs> it's pretty exciting. Our next reader is Walter Chien. Walter is a local writer, uh, works at Mount Mercy, and his story uh, Quasar Gets a Car was in issue number four of Obsolete, so please welcome Walter.
5: Thank you, Rich, Uh, thanks to New Books, CSPS. Um, I was at uh, Menards earlier today and there was a uh, cute little girl sitting in a cart, (coughs) like three years old or something, just picture perfect. And she saw me and she uh, waved at me and she said, uh, hello, and I, uh, looked back at her and I said, hello, how are you? Um, but she kind of kept my gaze, you know, usually they just kind of do something else. She kept my gaze and she said, and she kind of looked at me and she pointed her finger at me and she said, uh, you look like, but before she could finish, her mom put her hand over her mouth. <laughs> so, <laughs> just kind of left hanging there. <clears throat> Let the girl speak. It's okay.
6: The
5: only, thing that, the only thing that came to my mind is something that my mom had said to me, and I don't know where this came from, but she said I look like Tom Hanks. So <laughs> she must have, She was probably going to say you look like Tom Hanks. Okay. Uh, I don't know what that has to do with the story, but um, I thought I should have something to segue into it. Uh, this is about this story is about a, a man who... Uh, Uh, When I was in college in Iowa City in the 80s, um, everybody knew who he was, um, but then again, nobody knew anything about him. Um, And he was kind of everywhere, he was very kind of omnipresent. And also about a little uh, greasy spoon called the Hamburg Inn, Uh, and also kind of the craziness of college life. So, this is called Quasar Gets a Car. Like greasy spoons everywhere, you can tell the comers from the goers by the way they mingle during the breakfast rush. Comers, time-tested patrons, brace themselves like cosmic travelers falling through space on re-entry to the world and the land of the living. All others, the goers, position themselves opposite the chrome and the glass like time-sharing tourists in need of reassurance that they are, in fact, where they are. Uncertain, they tend to order things that don't exist and bag the rest. Grease glistening on the farmer's shredded hash brown brow, the spittle on the griddle gurgling under busty golden yokes ready to burst, and spitting links squirting like little dicks hot for the fork, a bottomless cup of thonic tonic to wash it all down, good to the last drop. We comers are pilots in solidarity, urban satellites of steel creating random havoc, forever orbiting some misbegotten son of bitch. Speaking of son of bitches, Nobody knows Quasar's real name, and word is, his family is dead. More refugee than vet, we conjecture, same time, same country, different war. Maybe it all started in Nam, where the quicksand seeps through your skin. Maybe he tripped on one too many two-step vipers. One will always be too many down there. Tiger traps and tar pits. Some say he is a Tai Chi master and can kill a man with one finger. If he poked your chest with his finger, your heart would explode. No fucking shit. He thinks he's invincible like a superhero. He looks at you like that sometimes, arms flapping as he walks by. Up, up, and away. Quasar may very well be the last pedestrian in the world. Bugger gets around. He knows how to navigate the vehicular winds that blow through town by weaving between galaxies and wind stars like a solar surfer. Quite a sight to see. He falls through traffic like an accident in slow motion. Arms and legs everywhere silhouetted against azure skies. Frozen like a demented snow angel. But he never so much as bends a fender. Whatever happened, he minds his own business. Everyone has a theory, of course. Some say that he's a vet from the US of A's blown gamut in Southeast Asia. That explains the army jacket. But lots of people wear army surplus. So what? It's art punk chic, olive drab, post-hippie cartoons with buttons. More us than him. Quasar is apolitical. Like the song goes, Telephone's ringing. They told me it was Chairman Mao. The telephone is ringing. And they told me it was Chairman Mao. Well, I don't care who it is. I just don't want to talk to him now. So, what say you, questionable mini man, tiny mass of humanity? You have journeyed so far. We want to throw ourselves into the street with you to stop this endless cycling into oblivion. We want to see their beady eyes, too, peeking through tinted glass, beneath visors, laughing, crying, yelling, grimacing, sometimes even dying behind the wheel. And yet, <clears throat> And, and they just keep on looking. They say things we can't hear and are not to be trusted. All oncoming traffic poses a threat to us and our passengers. We brace ourselves against all of it. We wait for the moment before a collision, before we become, like you, a tableau of crumpled legs, wings, and ruptured thoraxes on a windshield. Autumn leaves wiggle. All will fall eventually. There's a girl who lives next door to you. From her basement window, she can see your silhouette through the drapes. You pace a lot, everything flailing like a Balinese shadow puppet. In the summer, windows open, she can hear you <coughs> mumbling to yourself. Sometimes you make sounds like a deranged squirrel. Wonk, donk, trunk. You live next door to that guy, people ask. What's he like? He barks like a mad squirrel. That's what? Then one night, like the other nights, a man comes over to her house. They embrace as the moonlight squeaks through their twisted blinds as a, of their smoky little love nest. They're ravenous, so they devour a cold meatloaf and play, Don't Drop the Soap. They yell, Stop, and put it in overdrive. They squeal, Oh, yes, and put the hammer to the floor. Unlike the other nights, the man wants to be a spy this time around. She has front row seats. At four in the morning, they open the window, just a crack, and wait in a sticky embrace as the quasar. <coughs> or the quasar Borealis. They chutter like guinea pigs in the early morning light and wait for the puppet show to begin. The lights go on, they watch, their f- they watch with their fingers in each other's junk, orbs orbiting shafts of swollen blood sausage. Oh, the hungers. He blares Chinese opera and sings along, wonk, donk, chonk. So what say you industrial traveler, lost son of the Milky Way? We hear what you are saying. Today is a good day to fly. I am the Tai, tai Chi maestro. I can feel it building in my belly like a dynamo ready to blow, bolts of lightning shooting through my fingers and toes to light up the cosmos. I am untouchable. Now look what you've done. We're famished. Boy and girls scurry over moon gravel and climb aboard their little red Saturn. As they roll down. As they roll out, they turn around to see you following, limbs flapping in hot pursuit, blown forward by the hot solar winds. She wraps her arms around his neck and licks circles around his diamond-studded earlobe. I see me, I am center stage, sing, sing I say, Skylark, Thunderbird, Firebird, sing, this is my destiny. It's 5 a.m. by the time they re-enter the atmosphere. We spot them as they arrive at the greasiest spoon in town. The bench below the big picture window is filled with scratchy souls waiting for an open booth, the window offering a clear view of the orbiting traffic like white noise against the yellow glare of a new day. The old guy sitting next to us wears a purple fez atop his cue ball head. His pockets are full of hands. Awful busy down there. Poor fucked up monster, eyes spinning, running laps around the waitress's navel. But he's got a big car. All comers gravitate to each other. A booth opens and we descend into our seats and strap ourselves in. We spread open the menu like a centerfold. We're horny all over again. Her hand sneaks under the table and tugs at his bon appetit. Our waitress appears and chirps, you lovers ready to order? Just then, Quasar floats into orbit outside, through the window, across the street, standing on the curb, arms spread wide. Oh, look my eyes, she says. He appears to me. Supernova, Vega Chieftain, Aurora, Glorialis, I am sublime, Ultima. He wants to lift off, but he seems stuck in some funky time-space continuum. The gravity of the curb holds him fast. Metallic meteors speeding in all directions have him trapped. Each time he attempts to blast across, he must fire his retro rockets and recurve. He flaps his arms and tries again. A horn blares, wonk, he recalibrates. I have arrived, I am the light. You cannot bend the light. A red blur streaks from across the window. He buckles over, slamming the hood of the astral craft. Donk, donk, donk. Quasar rises and arms outstretched like a great astral falcon. You cannot break the light. He lunges forward, arms thrust skyward, about to take flight, another sliding screech and a streak of green flashes from the left. Wonk, wonk, wonk. A sonic blast cracks the sky and shatters our universal peace as a million feathers explode into the stratosphere. The feathers float down in a cosmic blizzard of fluff, shrouding the sky, blocking all vision, muffling all sound. All comers stand at attention. Quasar has disappeared. Meteoric traffic has stopped. We search for some sign of life, a glimmer, a light to shine through the bloody dawn. Then there is faint laughter, then a louder snicker. Hands appear to be reaching through the blood-spackled autumn morn. It is he. We spy him falling toward us through the feathers, first hands, then arms, then legs. He appears like a demented angel floating down to us with broken wings and face aglow. He looms ever larger and larger until he splatters against the picture window, like we are the ones who hit him. His face is pushed to one side. He peers at us like a man arrested for breaking the law of gravity. Quasar speaks. I am here. The comers are stunned, the goers uncertain. I stand as if in a trance and walk over to him. He eyes me like a one-eyed vulture. I lean toward him, my body pressing against the warm glass. I put my hand on the window. He skewers a crooked eye. Then he raises a hand and points a finger at me through the picture window as if to skewer my heart. He drools a little. smiles. My heart skips a beat. I am speechless. As the feathers drift and settle, we stand and stare, one comer to another, separated only by the big picture window. He rubs his face against the glass and grins like the lunatic that he is. Quasar peels himself out the window and turns to greet the masses all agog. The crowd parts, the feathers melt away. He steps onto the street, then leaps in the air and soars in a great arc, landing at the cockpit of a spanky green mercury. The pilot exits the craft, bows, and bestows to him the keys. Quasar takes control of his new ship and climbs aboard. He straps himself in and fires up the engine. It hums sweetly. He adjusts his goggles and nods to the adoring masses. Then in a roar heard throughout the cosmos, Quasar blasts off into the great blue yonder, never to be seen again.
2: Our next reader is Jonna Higgins Fries. Jonna's writing has appeared in Grist, the Wapsipinicon Almanac, and Earthlight Magazine, as well as an anthology, This Sacred Earth, which is widely used in college courses on spirituality and the environment. She is currently seeking an agent for her book, All We Can Do, a memoir of parenting and illness. And I'd like to invite Jonna to the podium, and we've got a couple of slides we need to get up here. Anyway, let's have some applause. For <laughs>
3: Thank you. Thanks, Rich, and thanks, Marianne, and thanks to CSPS for uh, hosting us. Um, when Rich asked me to contribute to um, the issue of obsolete that was on alternative views of medicine, I wasn't sure what I could say. My sons and husband are only alive thanks to Western medicine, so I'm a pretty big fan. Um, Often technology and love are portrayed as opposites and we hear a lot about problems with technology and with healthcare in the United States and there are many problems. So I thought perhaps the most alternative thing to do at this moment in history would be to write about a few things that are right with technology and American healthcare. When other people say my sons are miracle babies I don't argue, but to me they are science babies. They are alive because of high-speed oscillating ventilators, antibiotics, blood thinners, flexible cannulas, and dissolving sutures. I think of a miracle as something that intervenes beyond the normal rules. But my boys are alive thanks to a profound understanding of the rules, for example, how oxygen is absorbed by the lungs, how it binds to hemoglobin, and how nitric oxide can assist in that process. And yet, those ideas and materials and equipment weren't lowered from the sky. Someone thought they were necessary and then devoted hours to design and build and test them. What really strikes me as a miracle, or at least something I hadn't known before I became intimately involved with American healthcare, is the way in which technology can be love. For the first three weeks of his life, my older son, Ruben, was on a high-speed oscillating ventilator. It didn't so much help him breathe in the sense we normally think of it as jiggle air into his lungs by vibrating them over 100 times a minute. But he didn't get better. When he was 21 days old his lung collapsed. The room filled up with people and Eric and my parents and I were pushed out the door and across the hall. No, one of the doctors barked at a tech. We don't want that stat. We want an emergency. Dr. Palmer came over to us. Please, I said. If he's dying we want to let him go peacefully and hold him and tell him we love him. Dr. Palmer told us, for now there's reason to hope for recovery. His lung has a hole in it and so air is escaping into his chest cavity. That was making it difficult for his heart to beat. He's so swollen with fluid that I couldn't get a needle through to his chest cavity and I was scared. But finally I called for an adult spinal tap needle and I was able to penetrate through all the swelling and drain the air out of his chest and his heart is working better now. When this happens it's usually a sign that the patient will not continue to do well on the ventilator alone. I'm recommending that we place him on ECMO. Do you have any questions about that? Eric and I looked at each other. What do you think are the odds that he'll survive? Overall, in these cases, it's about 80%. With Ruben, he looked into the room where I lay motionless. I would say above 50%. And what are the odds that he'll survive without ECMO? Much less than that. Eric and I looked at each other. There wasn't much to decide. Let's do it, Eric said. I suppose one component of love for another person is that you want to help them be well, and you probably can't do more to help a person be well than put them on ECMO, which is a radical form of life support in which the patient's blood runs through a machine outside their body that functions as heart, lung, and kidneys. Let me say that again. Patient's blood runs through a machine outside their body that helps their heart pump blood. The lungs completely collapse to rest and heal, while the oxygenator puts oxygen directly into their blood and takes out carbon dioxide and a dialysis machine helps the patient's own kidneys which usually can't keep up when they're so ill by scrubbing toxins from the blood and removing fluid. In effect some of Ruben's veins and arteries now ran outside his body. The patient's body is relieved of nearly all responsibilities. Ruben had been surrounded by equipment before but now he was hidden behind it. The components of the ECMO circuit were arrayed in a line across the front of the room where the double doors had been propped open. A long tape ran from the ECMO circuit to the bed, preventing anyone from trying to squeeze between the two and jostling the cannulas that carried Ruben's blood to the machine. The things the body does by itself, with no thought from us, are difficult to replicate with technology, and so every aspect of his functioning was continuously monitored by a full-time nurse and a full-time tech. Reuben was on high doses of heparin to prevent the blood from clotting in the ECMO circuit. Because of this, it took his blood about five minutes to clot. You and I, sitting here, require about a minute and a half. One danger was that he might begin bleeding into his brain. Every other day, he had an ultrasound to see if this was happening. One morning when Dr. Palmer ordered the scan, I stood in the hallway, holding my arms folded across my chest. I hate Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. He placed a hand gently on my shoulder. We do too. He stood next to me for another moment and then he was gone. But writing the order for the test and then standing there for a moment in the midst of all he had to do 19 other babies to see, orders to write, notes to dictate, administrative duties those were acts of love for me, for Reuben, for all the babies. <laughs>
0: Todd Colby is an Iowa native and poet living in Brooklyn, New York. He is the author of Tremble and Shine, Riot in the Charm Factory, Cush, and Rip Snort. All available via Soft Skull Press.
6: Hi, I'm Todd Colby. <clears throat> For time and being, I miss you a lot. Like totally trying to attach a wristwatch to thin air is disastrous, or trying to wave goodbye with a phantom limb is just so retarded. I tried to tell you, love doesn't. Ha- love is glamorous. That it doesn't always end, or doesn't have to end, with the same dull thud of a half-eaten chicken thrown at the side of a dumpster. It doesn't suck to be us, because that just isn't possible. You see, I designed this stuff to be springy and tinny with delight. My fascination with necks and calf muscles and other amusements of the Brooklyn class is really delightful at its core. The smell of amber and May on my pillow. I want to do with you what rich people do every Sunday morning. And the next poem is called um, um, Poem from Paris. In Paris, I packed a bag, stayed in a hotel, sleepless for three nights. I poured rubbing alcohol on white rice in the bathroom sink and set it ablaze. It was a rite of purification that got me thrown out of the hotel. Top 10 facts. Fact. Lou Reed invented the modern dial tone in 1966 for Bell Laboratories. Fact. Keith Moon had all of his suits handmade by the same Parisian tailor as the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan. Fact. David Bowie owns a building in Los Angeles that contains three rental units and one commercial space on the ground floor. Fact steven tyler has run seven marathons his best finishing time is two fifty six making him one of the fastest marathoners in his age group fact hall and Oates wrote sarah smile as a result of meeting the legendary poet and fan of the duo allen Ginsberg, after one of their gigs fact in nineteen forty nine aretha franklin won the new jersey state dart championship she's the youngest champion seven years old to this day fact in 1979, Robert Plant inherited 76% controlling interest in the Bear Aspirin Company from his late grandfather, Franklin Plant. Fact Bob Dylan proposed to his first wife, Sarah, in a Sears and Roebuck store in East Lansing, Michigan, as they shopped for a refrigerator. Fact John Lennon had such a severe shellfish allergy that he could not even be in the same room as a lobster. Fact. Donny Osmond has a collection of over 5,000 old TV guides in his basement in Salt Lake City. Fact! Alice Cooper lives in Utica, New York on a dry docked houseboat. My thoughts on bears. When bears are depicted as playing cards or smoking cigars, it contributes to people feeling like they could be friends with bears or that hanging out with a bear in nature might be a funny or entertaining way to pass the time and make a new friend. Most bears I know are stupid and selfish, and yet bears are rarely held accountable for their actions simply because they're bears, and that's that's bullshit. When stupid and selfish bears slap people on the back and surprise them with outward signs of affection, uh, people often get the wrong idea and get too friendly with bears, and like want to hang out with bears and play sports with bears and g-chat with bears and other stuff like that, and that's just not fair to all the people that need real friends. I like pictures of bears better where the bears are doing things they would normally do in the wild. Um, and then um, I just have two, uh, two short ones left, and this will be called body palm. Really? <clears throat> really, all a body is for is jumping up and down in front of relatives when they come over. You can do that in front of them because they sort of have to be there and put up with you. And watch what you do from the best, which is jump up and down like a fucking weirdo. And I'm going to close out this poem. Or this, uh, this set of... Yeah, I'm going to close this out, man. With uh, be cool, everybody. Be cool. Be cool, everybody. Be cool. Because something has been put into your body that makes you forget the hassles of the man and takes away your unrealistic expectations of the future. So you can just be kicking back with a lot of inappropriate thoughts and some really strong coffee. Good luck, everybody.
0: Rich Dana is a writer, artist, and carpenter and the publisher of Obsolete. He has been a zine maker since the 70s. He is interested in media theory and general semantics and is obsessed with repurposing technology. Near the end of Rich's reading, the live recording stopped, so he later re-recorded the missing section. Oh,
2: great. I'm going to read a short piece from the nearly complete manuscript for the new Best of Obsolete book. And ironically enough, it's a piece that never ran in Obsolete. Uh, It's one of the bonus pieces. Um, There are several several new or uh, unpublished pieces And this is something that I wrote back during the 2010 election. It's called, Why I Blame Rush, the band, not Limbaugh, for the Tea Party. I read an article this summer that the Canadian rock band Rush was filing a lawsuit against Kentucky senatorial candidate and Tea Party love child Rand Paul. The Power Trio's lawyer alleged that Paul's campaign use of that the Paul campaign's use of their song Spirit of the Radio constituted copyright infringement. Oh the irony I thought, the band who had openly promoted libertarian philosophy through their music credited Rand Paul's namesake, polemical sci-fi writer Ayn Rand for the inspiration for several of their records. Ayn Rand's name has been in the news a lot lately. The Russian-born novelist, founder of of objectivism, and lover of laissez-faire capitalism is often mentioned as one of the spiritual forebears for the Tea Party movement. In his October 27th, 2010 article in GQ entitled The Bitch is Back, Andrew Corsello lays out a blistering, hilarious, and deadly accurate portrayal of the influence uh, uh, Rand has had on America's I got mine, so fuck you class. He describes the heroes of Rand's novels like Howard Rourke in The Fountainhead and John Galt of Atlas Shrugged as square-jawed and Aspergerish of mean, and the effect of Rand on a young reader thus. During my own college days, I observed that a number of freshly minted Randroids in my midst were intellectually disciplined to a degree I would previously have thought impossible. I also admit that a few of them were better questioners of ideas and of themselves. Which in turn made them more honest people. But most fell into the hapless group of Rand readers, the ones whose post adolescent insecurity was alchemized upon contact with the fountainhead and atlas shrugged into a bizarre, unlaughing superiority. So where does the ageless trio of Torontonian rockers come into play? Corsella only mentions Russian passing. I cite my junior year of college, during which I frequently experienced precipitations of plaster dust onto my face while lying in bed, thanks to an ARA, Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand asshole, who lived above me and his girlfriend. I could never determine whether it was the Richter scale copulations that shook the dust loose, or the 120 decibel stereo blasting of Ayn Rand inspired band Rush that they used to soundtrack, as a soundtrack to, the, to enhance them. But Rush was more than a soundtrack for a quasi-libertarian humping. It has been the soundtrack for quasi-libertarian, quasi-intellectual circle jerks for more than a quarter of a century. Anthem, the opening track on Rush's 1975 hard rock masterpiece, Fly By Night, is an obvious reference to Rand's 1937 dystopian sci-fi novel of the same name. The band's next outing, the 1976, oops, 1976 concept album, 2112, credits The Genius of Ayn Rand in the liner notes. In an era of Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin pounding out post-hippie amphetamine-crazed blues-inspired fuck rock, how did Rush settle on libertarianism as a message? While other drummers, rock drummers like Keith Moon or John Bonham have been famous for their bacchanalian lifestyles, Neil Peart. Rush's square-jawed and Aspergerish drummer, <laughs> has long been described by his bandmates as quiet, solitary, and a voracious reader, and a major fan of Rand's writing. In his utterly unironic essay, Rand, Rush, and Rock, Journal of Ayn Rand Studies, t- 2002, Chris Matthews Schiabara points out, in compositions like Red Alert, The Big Money, The Weapon, and Red Barchetta, Pert engages in a Randian repudiation of the herd mentality and social conformity and an exaltation of the individual, which the author identifies as the fundamental assumption of political conservatism and its distaste for big government. In the 70s, I was a square-jawed and Aspergerish misfit 17-year-old, lying on my bed listening to rush at top volume through giant avocado green headphones so as not to wake up the folks. Reading those liner notes, I picked up Anthem and read it. All across the country, square-jawed and Aspergerish misfits were doing the same thing. At night, on a country road in Iowa, we got together sitting on the hood of a Chevy Nova, listening to 2112 on an eight-track car stereo. Under the, car, uh, under the stars, we smoked weed and pontificated endlessly about personal freedom. Somewhere under the same stars, on a dirt road in South Texas, I'm guessing that a 17-year-old Rand Paul was probably doing the same thing with his own square-jawed and Aspergerish friends. We were growing up in the 70s. We were a little too young to have been hippies and felt cheated out of our share of free love and good acid. The economy sucked the Middle East Middle Eastern oil producing nations, had us over a barrel, and we were at the end of a long and pointless war. We read 1984, Animal Farm, Fahrenheit 451, and Atlas Shrugged, and we listened to a lot of rush. Fast forward to 2010. The economy sucks, the Middle Eastern oil-producing nations have us over a barrel, and we are at the end of a long and pointless war. Like a million Manchurian candidates, the Randroids have been activated, this time dragging behind them a load of middle-aged fear, prudishness, and religious zealotry forged by 35 years of dead-end jobs, shriveled retirement accounts and televangelism. It's a toxic mix. The hypocrisy is barely below the surface and stories of youthful indiscretion come out for Tea Party darlings like Rand Paul and Christine O'Donnell. I'll bet that Rand Paul was listening to Tom Sawyer during the Aqua Buddha incident. Like a nation with a collective case of Stockholm Syndrome, these government haters have cast their lot again with Republicans and their empty promises of smaller federal government, but their dark secret is this, they still feel cheated out of their share of free love and good acid, and they still listen to Rush.
0: Listener supported Bound Boundoff is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Boundoff, copyright off and the respective authors, all rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.